the National Archives podcast series. Necessity, the mother of invention, Britain's response to the demands of total war, 1939 to 1945, presented by Clive Hawkins. Today's talk is about how Britain responded to the demands of total war from the immediate pre-war period to final victory in 1945. I would like to illustrate some of the developments in military and civilian technology that enabled Britain to respond to the numerous challenges it faced. In this talk, I want to look at some of the lesser known developments that were part of Britain's road back to full fighting strength to show how the country geared up to face aggression and illustrate the huge volume of production, innovation and design that was required to fight the war effectively. Throughout the 1930s, it became increasingly obvious that the rise of Nazi Germany and the increased belligerence of Italy and Japan meant that the status quo of, of the post-World War I period was going to be challenged. The liberal Western democracies were and are heavily criticised for the appeasement of Hitler's Germany, their over-dependence on old-style diplomacy and a lack of foresight when considering effective rearmament. This is to a degree justified, but it is not the whole truth. It is a fact that the only way to outproduce a fascist state hell-bent on military aggression is to become a centralised state that controls the workforce, factories, flow of money and resources your system becomes much like that of the aggressor, and even though Britain did become far more centralised as the war progressed, it was an almost impossible task to sell that to the British public in, in the pre-war period. It is also a fact that Nazi Germany was prepared to run with an unsustainable financial policy because Hitler intended to redress the future gaping shortcomings by pillaging resources from conquered territories, an option not open to Britain. It was believed in both Britain and Germany that Britain would win a long drawn out war because of her greater worldwide resources. Germany would need to strike hard and fast if she was to prosper. Britain therefore pursued a policy, this is Chamberlain's government, of maintaining a strong fleet and an ability to offer a credible aerial threat. It was hoped that this alone would dissuade Hitler from launching an aggressive war. Unfortunately, the logical scenario did not fit with the dictator's worldview. The loser in the contest of fun was, was to be the British Army. The consequences of this would become apparent when Blitzkrieg struck in 1940. Before we move on to the weapons of war, I would first like to look at the revision made to protect the home front. The bombing of civilian targets had been a major concern for Britain's politicians since World War I. It was believed in many circles that advances in aircraft technology had made the bomber unstoppable. The bomber will always get through was a phrase used by Stanley Baldwin in 1932 in the speech, A Fear for the Future. The provision of adequate protection for Britain's civilians was therefore deemed to be of a great importance as the threat of war increased. My first illustration is that of an Anderson shelter and it's from document reference H0205257. The Anderson Shelter was designed in 1938 by William Patterson and Oscar Carl Kerrison in response to a request from the Home Office. It was named after Sir John Anderson, the Lord Privy Seal, with special responsibility for preparing air raid precautions. Once evaluated by the Institution of Civil Engineers, the design went into production. It was designed to accommodate six people. It was of Baltic construction comprising 14 corrugated steel panels. The overall dimensions were 1.8 metres high, 1.4 metres wide and 2 metres long. The recommended method of installation was to bury it 1.2 metres in the ground and cover it with a minimum of half a metre of soil. They were issued free to householders who earned less than £250 a year. Those on higher income were charged £7. 1.5 million were distributed from early 1939. 
A further 2.1 million were built during the war. The design was overall very effective, quite resilient to shock and blast, but cold and damp were however a problem. And in the illustration that we have here, it shows from uh, the borough of Bexley, a, uh, an Anderson shelter constructed within the confines of a house. Uh, I don't believe that, uh, well, I don't have no evidence to suggest that was, that, that was ever uh, undertaken. Another illustration that I have here, also from two, HO205257, shows an Anderson shelter clad in concrete, and this is just to, to illustrate you know, other, other uses for that type. The other type of sh shelter officially issued to the, uh, the general public was the Morrison, officially termed Table Morrison Indoor Shelter, designed by John Baker and named after Herbert Morrison, the uh, Minister of Home Security. It came as a bolted construction assembly kit comprising 360 parts with assembly tools provided. It was constructed from sheet plate and welded wire. It was two metres long, 1.2 metres wide and 0.75 of a metre high. It was supplied free to those households with an income of less than £250 a year. The basic concept of the design was that the Morrison provided a solid dining table that could be slept under at night. It was designed to withstand the collapse of the upper floor of a building and proved to be very successful. One study showed that the majority of Morrison shelter occupants in severely bomb damaged homes had escaped without serious injury. In fact, 120 out of 136 had survived, uh, had escaped without serious injury. There were three fatalities recorded, all from a house that had suffered a direct hit. 600,000 Morrison shelters were distributed by the end of 1941, and a further 100,000 were issued by the end of the war. In 1950, Baker, the inventor, was awarded £3,000 for his design. Uh, the illustration I have here is from HO356, piece 10, and it's the plan of a Morrison shelter and just generally shows a blueprint and, the, and how, how the thing is con constructed and some of its component parts. I also have uh, a document here, HO186580, which is the uh, instruction manual that came with the shelter and gives you the detail of how to put the thing together. I'd now like to turn to the provision of respirators for the public. Britain had first considered civilian respirators in 1917. The use of gas on the battlefield had become common practice by this time and it didn't take much imagination to see how it could be combined with the regular aerial attacks on British cities. The idea was again considered in the 1920s but serious design work did not commence until 1934. Production finally started in 1936 with the development of the general civilian respirator made from thin sheet rubber with an acetate window and, we and a webbing harness, the filter section was in fact developed by the canning industry. It was simple and cheap to produce and was issued free to everyone from, from about four years of age up. It came in four sizes, small, medium, large and extra large. The design was improved as the war progressed. Stitching around the eyepiece was replaced by a vulcanised latex solution. This helped to improve the gas tight seal. Later versions had, a, had the size moulded into an improved face piece. The original design relied on the exhaled hair, air to lift the rubber away from the wearer's face to escape. This was a simple and cheap method, but it did not account for those with respiratory weaknesses. The answer was to fit a flutter valve. 350,000 of these were produced and issued on the production of a medical certificate. There was also a civil defence model that was akin to the military type with separate eyepieces and a civilian filter and flutter valve. Approximately 97 million civilian respirators had been produced by the end of the war. 
The first illustration I have here is from HO106, piece 2661, and it gives the breakdown of production, showing the, the, the approximate figure of 97 million respirators being produced. The second illustration is from HO186, piece 2661. Uh, this was a, a survey carried out at the end of the war uh, regarding the safekeeping of, of respirators by the general public and consists of comments made by the public. Uh, one says uh, from a housewife, when my husband came home from overseas, I had no room to store it, uh, store the three gas masks in a small flat, so I put them in the dustbin. And so this just illustrates uh, the attitude of people to uh, the old respirators. The threat of aerial attack also led to demand to provide personal protection for the home services and workforce. Helmets of World War I vintage had undergone a modernisation programme in 1935. Removable and more hygienic liners had been introduced. Then in 1938 they were further upgraded with the older leather fittings being replaced by more modern materials. Also in 1938 it was decided that a new production run of helmets would be required to provide for the civilian population. The new Mark II helmet was first issued to the police and fire services only going to the Armed Forces and Air Raid Precaution Department in 1939 when numbers allowed. By 1939, the AOP Department had ordered 1.8 million, uh, including supplies for industry. By July of that year, the AOP had been fully supplied, with the remaining 750,000 going to industry by that September. This, in fact, was only a small proportion of the total that would be needed. From July 1940, the Home Guard and services other than regular troops were supplied with substandard military-grade helmets and helmet stocks made from mild steel. The military helmets that had failed on quality checks were marked with a single hole in the rim adjacent to the chin strap. Those made from mild steel strip were marked with two holes, three holes for those made from mild steel plate and four holes for those with, from, made from mild steel. All of these types were not regarded as being fit for military service, but perfectly adequate for civilian use. In 1941, a new pattern of civilian helmet was made available for businesses and premises and street fire parties. Initially, they had to be purchased for five and six, or 27.5 pence. They were of lighter construction, made in two sizes and supplied with a liner, which the owner had to fit to the helmet with a shoelace. Production commenced in December 1940 and it was completed at the end of 1941 when approximately 10 million had been produced. The authorities were keen to make adequate provision as they were very much aware that commercial concerns were producing non-standard helmets for private purchase. They were generally similar to the military pattern. Many of them provided only very, very limited protection. Materials used to produce the shells included light alloys, leather, bakelite and compressed fibre. The illustration that I have here is from, from HO96P7 and it shows impact tests on the military and civilian pattern helmet. The second illustration shows blueprints for the design of the, the military pattern and civilian pattern helmet and they are to be found in HO186-1121 and HO45-18153. There is also the detail of the, the liner for the civilian helmet, uh, and that's in HO186-1121. And finally, there is the, the Ministry of Home Security notice for, on the provision of steel helmets and the assembly uh, instructions issued with the helmet. Uh, this is from HO186-807. I would now like to turn to the weapons of war and some of the innovations, great and small. 
A good illustration is that of the Miles Aircraft Company. Even though Britain had made reasonable provision for the Air Force, there were still concerns regarding the, the disruption of supply through enemy action, and some innovative stopgap measures were put in place. An interesting example of, of British industry's ability to react was demonstrated by the, the Miles Aircraft Company. This is the Miles M20 fighter. The illustration here is of a photograph of the Miles M20 fighter, which is in Avia 44 P603. And the following is, is an, an extract from the Miles file. In May 1940, the firm did preliminary work on the layout of a, of a wooden fighter. This work was taken only to the stage which enabled approximate weights and performance to be predicted. A discussion took place with the Air Ministry on the 13th of July 1940, who agreed to support the project, providing the firm kept to its promise to complete construction within three months of this date. In view of the very urgent needs of this, uh, of this time, it was considered essential to delete all non-essential services for fighting, primarily, of course, to reduce weight, manufacture of parts, maintenance time and servicing. It was further considered that both fuel and am ammunition should be augmented as much as possible, which was the view shared by many fighter pilots with whom they, they had conversations. In order, therefore, to assist the rapid design and construction of the aeroplane, it was decided to design on the following lines. Wooden construction throughout, this would give us the advantage in production of being able to use immediately available woodworking labour and machinery without affecting in any way the labour requirements of existing metal types. There would be a non-retracting undercarriage and tail wheel um, and the deletion of all hydraulics. The use of an existing power plant, the fuselage was designed to fare with the standard Bowfighter Merlin 20 engine power plant. This policy enables us to have an aircraft in the air well within the three months we had stipulated after receiving the instruction to proceed from, from the Air Ministry. The first flight took place on the 15th of September 1940. The aircraft, in fact, was um, somewhere between, in, 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 as regards its performance, uh, speed was somewhere between the Hurricane and the, the Spitfire um, because it didn't have hydraulics, because there was far more room in the space, it could carry a lot more fuel and therefore had sort of double the range of, of the Spitfire and a lot more ammunition. We next turn to the provision of more basic weapons for the Home Guard and regular army, the submachine gun. Up to the outbreak of war, the British Army had little time for the submachine gun. The concept had been re relegated to the unwanted category. In fact, it was often referred to as a gangster gun in British circles. But contact with the enemy changed this view. Britain's soldiers returning from France understood that the submachine gun would indeed be a very useful addition to the armoury, and therefore high priority was given to the production of a British solution. To fill the initial gap, orders were placed in the USA for the Thompson submachine gun. In fact, they asked for as many as possible to be supplied. An initial order for 450 was soon increased to over 107,000, along with 250 million rounds of .545 ammunition. British orders for the gun would eventually rise to 514,000. The Thompson was a popular weapon and always regarded as totally reliable. Cost had been a constant issue, even when the 1939 price of £50 per gun had been reduced to £10 through production shortcuts. Britain's first attempt at producing a homegrown weapon was in fact a copy of the German gun, the MP28, which had its origins in World War I. 
This gun was called the Lanchester, named after George Lanchester, the chief engineer of the Stirling Armament Company at Dagenham, where the weapon was developed. The Lanchester was typical of the gunmaker's art, built to a high standard of finish. It was heavy, expensive and slow to produce. It was solidly made using brass for the magazine housing. It had provision for mounting a bayonet and used the same wooden stock as a standard uh, service rifle. The cost was £14 per gun. Production ended in 1943 with only 75,000 being produced. The entire production eventually went to the Royal Navy. The real answer to Britain's needs was not to come from the traditional gun making industry but from a stripped down design produced by a host of subcontractors. The weapon was to become the Sten gun, again influenced by German developments in the use of plastic stampings, rivets and, the man and manufacturing shortcuts. In Germany, the resulting MP40 was regarded with distaste by traditionalists, but even they were forced to admit that it worked as well as the more refined weapons. The British development started with a simplified Lanchester, the previous weapon. During the process, it was realised that it was possible to reduce the prototype to an absolute minimum while still functioning as an effective weapon. The new weapon was produced at the Royal Small Arms Factory, Enfield Lock. The responsible department was headed by Major Shepherd. The design was by H.J. Turpin. Their surname initials plus the E.N. of Enfield resulted in the name Sten. So Shepherd Turpin Enfield. The basic weapon was, was a steel tube containing a one-piece bolt. The barrel assembly had only two rifling grooves with sights fixed at 100 yards. The buttstock was constructed by using tubular steel of welded construction. Sub-assemblies and components were supplied by subcontractors, most of, of whom had never been involved in the gun-making industry. Machining operations were reduced to a minimum while extensive use was made of stampings. The Mark I Sten still had some traditional elements such as wooden furnishing, but this was further simplified through the Mark II and Mark III designs. Approximately 100,000 Mark Ones were produced, in excess of 2 million for the Mark II and 877,000 Mark Threes. A total production, including later variants, came to about 4,200,000. The cost of the Mark II, the most numerous of the, of the, uh, the Stens, was £3 per gun. The Sten was never loved by those who used it. It was sometimes referred to as the Woolworth gun, or the plumber's delight, or even the stench gun. It was utilitarian and certainly not up to the standard of the British soldiers' traditional weapons, but it worked effectively, was cheap and easy to produce, and, and was available in large numbers. An interesting footnote to the Sten story is that it was copied wi widely, including by the Germans who produced their own versions towards the end of the war. The first illustration that I have here is of the, uh, the design of the Sten gun Mark I. Uh, it is a, a top view and side view of the mechanism uh, and it is in Avia 22-16-16. The second illustration is that of the Sten gun Mark III and this is uh, to be found in Air 10 4384. And uh, there is another illustration of the Sten Gun Mark II, uh, another blueprint drawing to be found in Avia 22 16 16. I would now like to turn to anti-tank warfare. The performance of the German tank arm had come as a profound shock to the Allies during the Blitzkrieg. It was the fast-moving armoured thrust that had so badly unhinged the Allied plans in the period prior to Dunkirk. This served to concentrate the thinking of many designers on what was perceived as the main German threat. The army returning from Dunkirk was extremely short of weapons, especially anti-tank weapons. Approximately 800 had been left in France, with less than 200 to hand in the UK. 
This then allowed designs that would not have been given credence under normal conditions to come to the fore and arm Britain's Home Guard and regular defence forces. In a situation where resources are scarce, the first and obvious step is to keep it simple, and this is what occurred. I'd now like to talk about the number 74 grenade, or sometimes called the sticky bomb, designed by a Major Mills Jeffries and a Mr Stuart McRae. It was first issued in 1940, consisted of a glass sphere containing 1.25 pounds of explosive. This was covered with stockinette and soaked in a very sticky bird lime. The whole sphere was encased in a removable steel casing. The warhead was mounted on a wooden handle. It had two pins, one that retained the outer casing and a second that primed the grenade. The grenade relied on sheer blast effect to smash the steel plate. It was thought to be effective against 25 millimetres of armour and was also a good general demolition charge. To use it, it was either thrown at the target or smashed directly against it. Approximately two and a half million were produced between 1940 and 1943. The number 74 grenade did have a particular problem which the user was well advised to be mindful of. It would stick to anything, including the thrower's clothing if he wasn't careful. Next we turn to weapons that deliver projectiles from a greater range. And I'd first like to look at the Northover projector. Designed by a Home Guard officer, Robert Harry Northover, as a general purpose and anti-tank weapon. Production began in October 1940 following a demonstration to Winston Churchill. This weapon consists of a hollow metal tube fitted to a tripod with rudimentary sights. It had a simplified breech and fired a black powder charge detonated by a cap, much like a toy cap gun. The effective range was between 100 and 150 yards. Its maximum range was approximately 300 yards. Weight was about 28 kilograms. It was difficult to manoeuvre, although many Home Guard units, the principal users, devised their own wheel transport. Its principal projectile was the number 76 incendiary grenade, but it also fired the standard hand and rifle grenades. The number 76 incendiary grenade was in fact a self-igniting petrol bomb. The number 76 grenade had a nasty habit of breaking the barrel with predictable results. The answer to this problem, cheap and simple, was to make the grenades for the projector out of thicker glass and seal with a different coloured cap. Red cap for hand, hand use and a green cap for the Northover projector. Over 8,000 were in service by the summer of 1941 and 19,000 in service by 1943. The Northover project had many limitations, but it was cheap to manufacture, simple to use and easy to maintain. But more importantly, it was a readily available weapon that provided some means of striking at the enemy. They were maintained until better weapons became available. Another weapon that was designed for service at this time was the Smith gun. Designed by a retired Army Major, William H. Smith, as an anti-tank gun. It went into production in 1941, following another demonstration to Winston Churchill. I should say at this point that a successful demo in front of the PM seemed to be the way to get equipment into service. Many of the more unconventional weapons were not appreciated by the military, who were used to the traditional products of the gunmaker's art. Churchill, however, was impressed by innovation and original design and appreciated the benefits of getting cheap, workable designs speedily into service. It consisted of two main units, a smoothbore gun of 3-inch calibre with a 54-inch barrel and a limber for ammunition stowage. Both units were contained in cylindrical housings that could be towed by a standard civilian car. The mechanism and fittings were made from standard industry components. It fired anti-tank and anti-personnel ammunition. Its armour-piercing capability was thought to be 60 millimetres, an effective range 
between 100 and 300 yards. Used mainly by the Home Guard, although regular units used it for guarding installations, several thousand were in fact issued. Again, this provided a weapon with some offensive capability at a time of shortage and remained until something better came along. The illustrations that I have here, the first one is a photograph of the prototype Smith gun and that can be found in Avia 22, 1653. The next illustration from Avia 22, 1520 shows the Smith gun being towed by a civilian vehicle that has been specifically adapted for the job. The next illustration, Avia 22-1520, shows the Smith gun being manoeuvred into position by a crew of four men. Avia 22-1520 shows the gun being loaded. Avia 22-1520 also shows the Smith gun ready for action with the uh, the crew demonstrating the limited protection provided by the upturned wheel of the, the limber. I'd next like to turn to the Blacker Bombard, designed by Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Blacker. This weapon did not possess a barrel, instead it had a steel rod called a spigot fixed to its base. The projectile, or bomb, had the propellant charge in its tail. When the weapon was fired, the spigot struck the charge and blew the bomb into flight. It was either fired from a cruciform platform or a concrete pedestal. It had a range of around 100 yards uh, and fired a 20-pound anti-tank bomb. Uh, it had a crew of three and was a muzzle loader and could fire between 6 to 12 rounds a minute. Blacker had been experimenting with his concept in the 1930s, but his designs had never met with success. Demonstrated to Winston Churchill in August 1940, it was ordered in production for the Home Guard. GHQ then decided it would make a useful anti-tank weapon for the regular forces. It first appeared in late 1941 with approximately 22,000 manufactured in total. It is believed that bombards were used in the defences around Tobruk in the Western Desert. It was a reasonably effective weapon in a concealed defensive position and again provided the Home Guard with a powerful offensive weapon until more effective designs were available. The concrete pedestals for the bombard can still be seen dotted around the countryside today. Blacker's concept was taken up by the Royal Navy and formed the basis of the, of the multiple anti-submarine anti weapon Hedgehog. It also formed the basis of the Piat Projector Infantry Anti-Tank, and we'll speak more of that later. The first illustration I have here is from WO199, piece 1912, and it is the Blacker Bombard Manual, the instruction manual. Then I have a series of photographs uh, taken from cab 120 piece 375 which shows the, the, the weapon being fired at a Matilda 1 tank on a firing range. First illustration shows the tank before firing. The second um, after the first hit which demonstrates that the, it has sufficient explosive force to blow off the tracks and blow open the hatches of the vehicle. The next illustration shows that the armour of the tank has actually been penetrated and the tank has effectively been destroyed. And the final picture shows uh, that the turret of the vehicle has been blown off and is utterly destroyed. I now want to look at some new technology. Uh, the Munro effect was actually discovered by Charles E. Munro in 1888. 
Munro noticed while working at a naval torpedo station in Rhode Island, USA, that when a block of gun cotton with the manufacturer's logo stamped into it was detonated against a metal plate, the lettering was cut into the plate. He demonstrated some time later the potential of his discovery by constructing a shaped charge and blowing a hole in a steel safe. However, his discovery was not developed as it was not thought to be of military significance. This principle did not receive any attention until the late 30s when, when teams in Germany and Switzerland promoted the idea with demonstrations. Some even thought that they had developed some form of wonder explosive. Britain and other nations took up the idea and started their own development. This next illustration is of the number 68 anti-tank grenade and uh, it is to be found in WO185 piece 15 and it is regarded as the first shape charge weapon ever to be deployed. It could theoretically pierce about 60 millimetres of armour and it was fired from a cup discharger. had an effective range of between 50 to 75 yards. It was manufactured through to 1945, although it was, was declared obsolete in 1942 and, and issued to the Home Guard thereafter. Small numbers were used by the BEF in France and also forces in the Western Desert. The second illustration from WO185-15 shows the firing position for the, uh, the 68 anti-tank grenade. Uh, the photographs show a butt-mounted spade attachment uh, and demonstrates how uh, an individual fires the weapon at a target. The next illustration from DSIR 27 piece 50 shows the blast effects of the number 68 grenade when placed against different pieces of uh, armour plating. I'd now like to turn to the PIT, the Projector Infantry Anti-Tank. This started life as a, ba as a baby bombard and was developed by Major Mills Jeffries of Sticky Bomb fame. It became known as the Jeffries Shoulder Gun. A compact and man-portable spigot mortar, um, as, as in the Blacker Bombard, uh, led to Blacker receiving the £25,000 £25, for his part in the weapon. It consisted basically of a tube, a trigger mechanism and a spring. The propellant charge was in the tail, tail of the bomb, as in the Blacker Bombard. It had an effective range of 115 yards in the anti-tank roll and 350 yards against buildings. It, the warhead consisted of a 2.5 pound bomb. It entered service in 1943 and was first used in Sicily. Theoretical armour penetration was 4 inches, but field service showed that, this, that it was somewhat less. Supplied to the USSR through Lend-Lease, 1,000 weapons and 100,000 rounds were supplied to them. Also to the French resistance and Polish forces during the Warsaw Rising. Although the weapon was not loved by those who used it, it was difficult to initially cock and produce a fearsome kick. It did earn a reputation as an effective weapon of war. Six Victoria Crosses were awarded to members of the, of the, of Britain, of the British Commonwealth forces for actions using the Piat. Analysis of the early Normandy campaign found that 7% of all German tanks destroyed by British forces were knocked out by Piats. And as regards the, uh, the winning of Victoria Crosses, I have here a citation for, uh, for Frank Jefferson, and it reads, On the 16th of May 1944, during an attack on the Gustav Line, Monte Cassino, Italy, the leading company of Fusilier Jefferson's battalion had to dig in without protection. The enemy counterattack opened fire at short range, and Fusilier Jefferson, on his own initiative, seized a Piat gun and, running forward under a hail of bullets, fired on the leading tank. 
It burst into flames and its crew were killed. The fusilier then reloaded and went towards the second tank, which withdrew before he could get within range. By this time, British tanks had arrived and the enemy counterattack had been smashed. First illustration I have here is of the piet itself. It's a cross-section of the weapon and uh, it, it, it's to be found in Air 104384. The second illustration, also in Air 104384, shows the loading procedure for the piet. The next illustration shows how the bomb is loaded into the front of the weapon. The next illustration shows firing positions either from a trench or from a prone position. Another type of technology that was adopted and improved by the British was that of the armour-piercing discarding SABO, or APDS for short. This was means of improving the anti-tank performance of an existing weapon by improving the ammunition technology. To continue with standard technology would mean producing larger, more, pow more powerful weapons that would probably be too big to retrofit into existing vehicles. It was also realised that increasing the velocity of existing armour-piercing rounds would lead to the projectile shattering on impact. These are at velocities more than 850 metres a second. Developed by a team working for the French company Edgar Brandt just before the Franco-German armistice of 1940, the engineers were evacuated to the UK to continue their work with the ongoing British developments in the field. Armour-piercing discarding Sabre was further developed in UK between 40, 1941 and 1944 uh, by two engineers called Permeter and Kopuk. Uh, they were working at the Armour's research establishment. In mid-1944, the first armour-piercing discarding Sabo projectile was introduced into service for the British six-pounder anti-tank gun and in September 1944 for the 17-pounder anti-tank gun. At a thousand yards, the six-pounder anti-tank gun could penetrate approximately 67 millimetres of armour plate at an angle of 30 degrees when using a conventional armour-piercing cap round. Armour penetration increased to 123 millimetres when using the APDS. Again at 1,000 yards, a 17-pounder anti-tank gun can penetrate 131 millimetres of armour at 30 degrees using conventional technology. This increased to 192 millimetres when using APDS. However, on the downside, armour-piercing discarding sabo was less accurate than some of the earlier ammunition types and did less, less damage on penetration. Yet another adopted and developed technology was that of the Little John adapter firing armour-piercing composite non-rigid ammunition, commonly known as a squeeze-bore gun. Little John comes from the literal anglicised form of the name of Frantisek Janacek, the inventor of the device who developed it in 1930s Czechoslovakia. He fled to the UK when the Germans occupied his country and continued to work with the armaments research department through 1940-1941. The adapter was a bore-reducing device that screwed onto the end of the gun barrel. The round that it fired comprised of a tungsten core surrounded by a softer metal casing. On firing, the adapter reduced the bore of the weapon from 40 to 30 millimetres, squeezing the, out the soft outer casing and producing a projectile with a smaller cross-section at a much higher pressure. The higher velocity linked to the tungsten penetrator, which would not shatter on impact, greatly enhanced the performance. Muzzle velocity was increased from 792 metres a second in the standard gun to 1,280 metres a second. Penetration of armour at 500 yards was 88 millimetres compared to 57 for the simple armour-piercing shot. 
One limitation of the, of the adapter was that it had to be removed if standard ammunition was to be used. As with armour-piercing discarding Sabo, this device was fitted to British weapon systems which could not be upgunned or developed, in this case light tanks and armoured cars. Before we turn to our final developments, we need to look briefly at the events of the 19th of August 1942, the Dieppe Raid or Operation Jubilee. The Allied raid on the German-occupied port was really a trial run to gauge the practicality of taking and holding a defended port to support a broader invasion. It was never the intention to remain on French soil for long, just to secure it for a limited period and do as much damage to the German facilities as possible. Approximately 6,000 men, mainly Canadian troops, formed the assault force. Unfortunately, the action resulted in about 68% casualties, as killed, captured and wounded. Very few of the objectives were accomplished. There are a number of theories about why the raid was not a success, that the Germans were tipped off as one. Whatever the reason, it became apparent that, they, that a more specialised approach to mounting a seaborne landing against a defended position was required. One obvious failing was that few of the, the assault vehicles made it off the beaches. German newsreel of Churchill tanks and Daimler Dingo armoured cars stranded in the shingle are an enduring image of the whole affair. It became clear that specialist vehicles would be needed for any future attack. These would be required to tackle all of the elements that prevent an armed force from clearing the beach quickly and pushing on to its objectives. Things such as mines, beach obstacles, strong points and even the beach surface itself. At this point we need to turn to Percy Hobart. Hobart was commissioned into the Royal Engineers in 1904. He went on to serve in France and Mesopotamia in World War I. An early exponent of armour warfare, he transferred to the Royal Tank Corps in 1923. In 1934, Hobart became, a brig became brigadier of the first permanent armoured brigade in Britain and inspector of the Royal Tank Corps. It is very interesting to note that the father of the German Panzer Army, Heinz Guderian, showed great interest in, in the papers written by Hobart at this time, translating the material at his own expense. In 1937, Hobart was made Deputy Director of Staff Duties, Armoured Fighting Vehicles, and later Director of Military Training. He was promoted to Major General. In 1938, Hobart was sent to, to form and train the Mobile Force Egypt. His methods were resisted by some of the, of the more conservative thinkers, and Hobart was retired in 1940 for his unconventional ideas about armoured warfare. He then joined the Home Guard as a corporal, where, by all accounts, he soon had the village of Chipping Camden defended, like, and I quote, a hedgehog of bristling defiance. He was soon promoted to become deputy area organiser. Criticisms of Hobart's retirement led to Churchill reinstating him in 1941. He was immediately assigned to train the 11th Armoured Division. When this unit was sent overseas, Hobart, now 57, was, was retained in the UK and given the task of training the, the 79th Division. This unit would eventually become known as Hobart's Funnies. They were to play a major role in the D-Day landings, leading British and Canadian forces across the beaches of Normandy. The tanks of the 79th Armoured Division carried the specialist equipment that was so lacking at the time of Dieppe. I've chosen some of the principal vehicles to illustrate. The first weapon that I'd like to look at is the Churchill Crocodile. This was a conversion of the standard Churchill Mark 7 tank. The additional equipment consisted of an armoured trailer, which was a fuel container, of six and a half tonnes, an armoured pipe which ran under the vehicle and up into the flame projector, which replaced the whole machine gun. The standard turret was unaffected and this could function in the normal way. The trailer carried 400 gallons of fuel along with compressed nitrogen propellant and could produce 81 second bursts of flame. 
The jet had a range of over 100 yards. It was able to project the flame in the conventional way, which was immediate ignition, as well as a wet burst that would, that would flow into defensive positions and to be ignited by a follow-up shot. The crocodile was a fearsome weapon and could induce the surrender of an enemy position just by demonstrating its presence. It was, in fact, not used on, Norman, on the Normandy beaches, but went on to do sterling work throughout the Northwest Euro European campaign. Over 500 of these conversions were made. The next weapon I'd like to look at is the petard. The petard was a spigot mortar fitted in place of the standard turret armament on a Churchill tank. The 40-pound projectile known as the Flying Dustbin, which carried 28 pounds of high explosive, was, de was designed to destroy strong points and bunkers. It was a muzzle-loading weapon with an effective range of about 80 yards. The loader was provided with a sliding hatch which enabled him to reach out and tilt the rear of the barrel down. The fresh bomb could be inserted from below with only his head and shoulders being exposed. The petard was credited with destroying a number of strong points on D-Day and went on to serve for the remainder of the Northwest European campaign. The final weapon I'd like to look at is the bobbin or carpet layer. Designed to enable vehicles to move across a beach during an assault, it consisted of a large drum or bobbin that laid a carpet of matting three metres wide and 100 metres long. The Churchill would simply drive over the open end of the carpet and roll it out as it went. Two types of matting were deployed, sheets of hessian reinforced with scaffolding pipes and also interlocking hinged metal strips. The bobbins could be released once the job was done to allow the Churchill tank to engage targets with its main armament. These vehicles were supported by numerous other funnies including a fascines layer which laid bundles of brushwood latched together to fill ditches, small box girder assault bridges, mine ploughs, explosive charge layers, armoured ramp carriers, mine flails, beach armoured recovery vehicles, armoured bulldozers and canal defence lights which in fact were very powerful searchlights. The illustrations that I have here are the first one is W0279 piece 97. Uh, it is the manual that came with the crocodile flamethrower and it's just an illustration of the tank uh, in, in action. The other illustration that I have here is of the Churchill petard and this can be found in W0279 piece 106. That's the end of my talk. I hope it has been of interest to you and that it has served to illustrate some of the lesser known records at the TNA. Thank you. This event was recorded on the 19th of January, 2012 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.